in the middle of a sermon series called First Comes Love, Then Comes Dot, 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 Fill in the Blank, right? And it's based on a nursery rhyme of, that starts similarly. First comes love, then comes marriage, then comes a baby and a baby carriage, right? Um, but we've been talking about how that kind of seems to skip some steps, um, going straight from you know, this warm and fuzzy love immediately into marriage usually isn't the way it works um, unless you get married the next day or something like that, right? Um, yes, the Beatles tell us that all we need is love, 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 but, but that's not true, is it? Um, why? Because life happens. Anyone notice that? Life happens. Um, so our sermon series has been an attempt to kind of fill in the blank. What, what's it going to take beyond love uh, to have a relationship that lasts, marriage or otherwise, really? Uh, first comes love, then comes what? Um, and so Scripture has really offered us some good insights in this. The first week we were able to fill in the blank with the word sacrifice. First comes love, then comes sacrifice. That's pretty heavy, right? Um, but think about the ultimate love that we see in the Bible. When God showed humanity's love, um, humanity love through the person of Jesus, when you're really thinking about that as the definition of love, that is really ratcheting up the definition of love, right? That's making love much, much bigger than we normally think of it. The love that we see in Jesus for us is bigger than anything that we see portrayed in a romantic comedy movie or, or one of those novels, right? Or, or even some pop song. When Jesus became our example of love, love became huge, sacrificial, right? Think about Jesus' love for us, his grace, his mercy. Jesus showed us a love that wasn't 50-50, right? It's not you come halfway, I'll meet you halfway. Um, Jesus' love was 100% on his side, and how much on our side? None, Right? He didn't stop loving us because we stopped loving him or didn't even start loving him, right? Remember, we looked at this Greek word agape, this, this unconditional, genuine agape love that's used to describe the kind of love that God offers us, right? And the Bible defines this, um, this kind of love in scriptures like Romans 5, 8, where it says, but God demonstrates his own love, that word's agape, for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, right? What do we do to earn that love? Nothing. This is a love that's unconditional. It's not based on conditions at all, right? He loved us before we ever loved him. This is agape love. This is godly love. In another passage we looked at, 1 John 4, 9, this is how God showed his love, agape, among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, agape. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So not just sending us his son, but allowing his, sin to die, his son to die for us, right? That's God's love. That's, that's agape. We could spend all day, really, looking at all the different scriptures, Agape is mentioned 200 times in the New Testament, just everywhere. And almost every one of those times is connected to Jesus. Jesus is our example of love, godly love. And when we think of agape, we need to see Jesus. When we think of the love that Jesus shows us, he sacrificed what? All sorts of things, right? 
his position, his status, his power, even his own life, all so that we could experience genuine, unconditional, godly love. And we looked at how in Romans chapter 12, Paul says that, that because this is the kind of love that God showed us, now it's our, our reasonable response to him to offer ourselves as living sacrifices to him, right? In the same way that he loved us, being a sacrifice for us, we should be willing to be a sacrifice to him, right? Romans 12, 1, it says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. This is the unhypocritical love that we were talking about, right? The way we should respond to God's love is to live for him. And that includes offering that same kind of sacrificial love, not just back to God, but to, to the other people, right? Remember we looked at John 13, Jesus is washing his disciples' feet. And he says to them in verse 34, And so now I'm giving you a new commandment, love each other. That word again is agape. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. <laughs> in fact, your love for one another, agape, will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Isn't that a thought? <laughs> the loving relationship that Jesus requires us from us is 100% on our side, right? 100%. And, and what's the other side? Whatever they give. It doesn't matter right? First comes love, then comes sacrifice. You don't stop loving just because someone stopped loving you. This is the love of God. This is proof that Jesus is living in your life. Whoa, that's pretty heavy, isn't it? That's a lot to swallow, isn't it? That's not what the world is telling us, is it? It is so different than what the world is telling us, which, by the way, <laughs> is trying to squeeze us into its mold, what Scripture says. So for those, of, those who missed that first week, I just encourage you, go look it up online. There's just a lot there that, that, that would be really good for you to catch. God wants us to catch this stuff, right? But the truth is that we can't love that way without God helping us, Right? Without God transforming our hearts, without God transforming our minds, we just can't. There's just no way we could do that kind of love, right? We need his help. And that is a big part of the point here, isn't it? Our efforts in loving others is a means of grace. It's a way that we can receive more and more of God's grace because as we grow in our relationship with the Lord, we actually are able to love others more, right? As he continually helps us, as we continually go to him for help, we're receiving more and more in grace, and people around us are also receiving God's grace and his love through us, right? First comes love, then comes sacrifice. And that was just the first week. <laughs> Last week, Pastor Nathan got even further into the woods, didn't he? First comes love, then comes sacrifice, then comes what? You remember? Gentleness. Gentleness. <laughs> Scripture tells us that if we're going to love well, you'll have to include gentleness. 
Pastor Nathan had us look at a passage in 1 Timothy 6, and Paul's writing to this young apprentice pastor, Timothy, and he's sharing with Timothy how to fight the good fight, standing up for the truth, for all this false teaching that was going on in Timothy's church. Um, do we ever have to fight for the truth? Do we ever have to do that? Do we have to fight for what's right in our relationships, maybe in our marriage, maybe even in our church? And you remember the description of the fight that Paul was describing for Timothy? It was a description not of waging a culture war and, and asserting power and dominance over the people that we disagree with, but instead Paul describes a lifestyle, actually. And what he says is so countercultural, so, so different than what we get told by the world, right? First Timothy 6, it says, But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. See the lifestyle that he's talking about there? It kind of evokes this sense of intentional self-control, right? Kindness. God asks us, to, asks us to fight not by force, but by actual restraint, right? Don't you see that? Now, that just doesn't make any sense to us, right? That's just not what the world says to us. It's not what the world teaches. Gentleness doesn't get much airtime today, does it? Especially in anything that might involve a fight. Think about it. Just think about our political world, right? Really in every area of our life. How do we fight? Well, we do it by getting louder, don't we? You have to be more aggressive. You got to be louder. You got to shout your opinions, right? Isn't this our approach to everything these days? We seem to be strangely combative, <laughs> In every difference of opinion that we have, every subject that we want to somehow win people over to our side, right? How do we do it? <laughs> well, shove it down their throats. That's how we're going to do it. How's that working for us? Are we convincing people? <laughs> so many opinions fighting so ugly, right? Ugly is what it looks like. Does it look very Christian? Think about the fruits of the Spirit, what your life should look like if you're, you know, allowing the Spirit to be working in your life. Galatians chapter 5, Paul says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Did you, did you notice the word gentleness in there? <laughs> gentleness? <laughs> Do we ever see that Jesus was gentle? Oh, yeah, all the time, right? In fact, he was ticking people off because he was too gentle, right? Pastor Nathan pointed out one time, the time in John 8 when the woman's caught in adultery and they're bringing this lady and they want to stone her and, and he's just sickeningly, I can't even say the word, gentle, right? What are you doing? That just seems so odd to us, doesn't it? How could you be so gentle, Jesus? 
It's as almost, the, almost as if we assign gentleness with apathetic, right? You just don't care enough to put up a fuss. You just don't care enough <laughs> to make a scene. Jesus, you shouldn't be so wishy-washy. You see that? He's just so wishy-washy, isn't he? But do you really think that Jesus was wishy-washy? Honestly, apathetic? Jesus? No way! We don't even have any idea how much he cared. Right? He cares more than we could ever care. And yet it's almost as if he knows that there's this greater power at work in the world. I mean, and if we just stay the course, if we just live right, if we just respond right, that, the, that, that possibly good might win in the end? I mean, do you believe that? That by doing the right thing, that maybe good might still win? Even if we're not shoving it down their throats, Right? The truth is that gentleness, it's just not a blob out there going nowhere. That's not what gentleness looks like, right? It's a steadiness. A steadiness. Giving the other person in our life time and space to get there in their own timing, right? As they experience not an angry mob, but actually a better way. A godly way, right? And the life being lived out in front of them. You see that? With Timothy, it was the pastor leading his people. <laughs> the spirit being evident in the believer as they lived the life, right? The spouse patiently loving with gentleness, knowing that there's this greater power at work and that things might work out even if they're not. <laughs> the way I might choose them to work out right in this very moment, right? First comes love, then comes gentleness. Do you see that? Proverbs 15.1 says, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So by choosing our words wisely, by living our lives gently, what happens? We start building up trust, right? We start building up love and grace and all those good things that our relationships grow in, right? Our marriages, right? Your spouse, your friend, whoever you're trying to have a relationship with, they should feel physically and emotionally safe with you. Didn't they? Don't you think that's true? The believer loves well when they act with gentleness towards the other person. Even in times of struggle, even in times of conflict. Now, now is this approach to relationship fail-proof? No. Could someone take advantage of us if we're, if we're being gentle? Yes, right? Of course. I mean, the great example of that is Jesus. He was gentle, and he died, right? He was killed. But do we want to make our approach towards others based on the worst possible version of ourselves or the best possible version of ourselves? 
Do we want to actually work towards the betterment of our society or something worse? First comes love, then comes gentleness. Don't you think our world needs more and not less of gentleness? I'm currently reading this book, and it's really fascinating. Maybe you've read it. It's written, it's a New York Times bestseller, Arthur Brooks, and it's not, not necessarily a Christian book, but, but listen to this title. It's called Love Your Enemies. Subtitle is this, How Decent People Can Save America from the Culture of Contempt. I mean, what a title, Right? And again, this isn't a Christian book, but he, he's writing this book out of the hope of helping us get past what he calls our national problem of the culture of contempt. What is contempt? Well, as he defines it in the book, he, he's referencing these social scientists who define contempt as a toxic combination of anger mixed with disgust. He writes, deriving from the Latin word contemptus, meaning scorn, contempt represents not merely an outburst following a moment of deep frustration with another, but rather an enduring attitude of complete disdain. Brooks describes um, in the book, it's mostly talking about the political climate, right? Um, And we can definitely see this in the political climate that we see in the world, but, but just think about this. The political culture in our country has gone completely ballistic, right? The two sides are so toxic that we, we somehow have gotten to this point that we don't even actually believe that you believe what you say unless you believe that the other side is complete idiots. That's where we've gotten to, right? Or somehow evil incarnate, that they have no value whatsoever. That's the other side, Right? Do you disagree with that statement? (laughs) You've seen it, right? And Brooks references this recent poll that found that one in six Americans have stopped talking to a family member or a close friend because of recent elections. An enduring attitude of complete disdain, disgust with the other side, right? But... (laughs) Brooks doesn't just stay in the political world. He actually moves to marriage. And he has a psychologist friend who, who, who says that he can predict within, with a 94% accuracy whether a couple will divorce within three years simply by watching them interact for one hour. And how could he tell? Well, it's actually not through their anger because anger, misguided as it is, actually believes that things can get better. And they're angry sometimes. They, they actually care. They don't know what they're, how to fix the relationship. But they're at least pushing and trying, right? He actually says that the biggest warning sign of divorce are in the indicators of contempt. These indicators include sarcasm, sneering, hostile humor, and worst of all, eye-rolling. Eye-rolling. Eye-rolling is the biggest key to the whole thing. These little acts effectively say, you are worthless. You disgust me. You're beneath even caring about you. Right? 
He calls this the, the denigration of respect. And we see this in Washington, D.C., right? But should we allow this kind of behavior in our towns? In our families? Our marriages? We can do better, can't we? Don't you think we can do better? Just a couple of you agree. <laughs> what does Brooks offer as a solution? And again, he's not a Christian. And you'll have to read the book to get the full explanation. But, but the primary thing that he focuses on is practicing warm-heartedness. Practicing warm-heartedness. That, that's almost biblical, right? You could, we could make that work, right? When we treat one another with contempt or bitterness, what are we doing? We're actually dishonoring the image of God in our friend, right? In our family member, in our spouse. When we, when we say that they are totally worthless, what are we saying about God who created them, right? And we're breaking down the trust level in our relationship. Abuse is not just physical, is it? Gentleness. <laughs> requires us to speak to our partners with, with kindness, compassion, respect, gentleness, humility. <laughs> and I believe that we all have these tender wounds that we carry around, and a flippant word sparks it, right? We've got to be careful. We've got to communicate well. First comes love, then comes gentleness. In fact, this is such an important conversation. The next word we're going into goes along the same thing. First comes love, then comes sacrifice, then comes gentleness, then comes humility. Humility. Humility is actually the opposite of contempt. On a, on a practical level, when we decide that we are not the... The authority, the end-all authority, and whatever the, whatever the subject matter is, right? When we act a little more humbly, when we decide that someone else might have some value, even, even someone that we don't agree with, right? <laughs> That's humility, isn't it? And for a look at humility, we're going to actually turn to Philippians chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, you can flip that direction. Paul is actually writing to the church of Philippi in this letter. And, and if you want to get some context, you can read through that first chapter. And in the first chapter, he's really kind of describing this church and his own life where they're facing some strong challenges, some strong difficulties. And it's actually not inside the church. It's actually outside the church. They're not even sure how it's all going to turn out. They're not positive. It's going to turn out well. <laughs> Things are looking really rough. In chapter 1 of Philippians chapter 1. Um, but as he ends chapter 1, he states in verse 29, and, and this is in Brian, Pastor Brian's paraphrase, isn't it cool that we don't just get to believe in God, but we also get to suffer with him? I mean, isn't that cool? Don't you guys think that's cool? I mean, can I get an amen? Anyone out there who just loves to suffer with the Lord? Praise the Lord, Right? Let me ask you, do our relationships, do our, our marriages, do, do they ever face difficulty? They do, don't they? That's that life thing, right? What do we do with these life situations that are difficult? 
What do we do in our relationships? Paul's response up to this point in the letter, Paul's encouraging the church, uh, chapter 1, verse 27, uh, to stand firm in the struggle, right? In a manner that's worthy of the gospel, a manner worthy of Jesus dying on the cross for their forgiveness, right? For Paul, going through difficult times is not a time to give up on God. It's not a time to just take it by the, the bull by the horns and do it ourselves, right? It's actually a time to lean into what God wants us to do, right? And when, within Paul's description of what that looks like to work through a difficult time correctly, um, we have this passage that we are going to look at in Philippians chapter 2. So work with me in this passage. Philippians chapter 2, beginning with verse 1, it says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ... Do we have any encouragement with being united with Christ? Well, of course we do, right? If we have any comfort from his love, do we have comfort from his love? Of course we do, right? If, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, you see what Paul's doing here? How do we deal with outside difficulties? Well, we start by pointing out the many blessings that we have in our lives, right? Right? Let's be reminded of the blessings of God that we're experiencing in Christ. Let's start by looking at what God is doing for us. Not just all the difficulties, but let's look at these amazing blessings of God in our lives, right? In fact, Paul mentions koinonia. It's translated in this passage, the common sharing in the Spirit. It's this word that we are going to celebrate the goodness of God, not just separately, but together, right? It's like a togetherness. Let's remember that we're blessed. So that, verse 2, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. What's Paul saying? Well, he's, he's saying if you treasure the blessings of God, of God and what we have in the relationship that we have with him, but also with each other, right? And if you want to make your mentor, talking about himself, Paul, if you want to make him full of joy, then live in unity. And the key to unity in verse 2, it says, be like-minded in love and purpose. Be like-minded in love and purpose. Again, looking at this passage as we get into this, it's not a call to never acknowledge your own individual needs, but it certainly is an encouragement to not just become so inner-focused on your own individual troubles that you miss out on the opportunity of truly coming together as a family, and helping each other, right? How do we best encounter difficult times? Together. That's what Paul's saying, right? The truth is that when we choose to defer to others, when we notice that there's other people out there, not just me, right? That every, other people have hurts and pains and difficulties, that actually helps me. I mean, it, it helps it helps us, but it helps us as a bunch of individuals looking at each other, right? The way out of our individual discomfort and pain is sometimes by helping other people, looking around and seeing that they're also having difficult times. It brings greater purpose in our lives, outside of ourselves, to choose to help one another. And you'll also notice in verse 2 that we just read, Paul begins and ends with the very same thing. Look at verse 2 again. Then make my joy complete by being like-minded. 
which means to set your minds on the same thing, right? Like-minded. <laughs> Having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. You're setting, you're setting your minds on the same thing. See the repetition on the front and the back side of that verse? That's there for a reason. <laughs> and what is the one thing that Paul is pointing them to? Well, he starts describing that in verse 3. He starts with this. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Selfish ambition or vain conceit. So if we're going to try to live in unity with one another, the first off, the polar opposite of what we are looking for is selfish ambition and vain conceit. Let's just look at these individually. Selfish ambition really is just a focus on ourselves, right? On the things that we have going on in our own lives. And that obviously, if we're focused on ourselves, we can't be focused on everyone else, right? Selfish ambition would be a problem. And this vain conceit, really an interesting combination of words. The Greek words actually literally mean empty glory. Empty glory. So there's this sense of inflated importance where we think we're so important and we want to make sure that we look good to everybody else. And this is empty, <laughs> because who deserves genuine glory? Not us. It's him, right? He's the one worthy of our, of our praise. He's the one worthy of our worship. And when we get that, when we realize that he is worthy and we are not, what is that? Humility. Humility. <laughs> so Paul says in the second part of verse 3, he actually states it, rather... In humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, not looking to your own selfish ambitions, right? But each of you to the interests of the others. See the key in unity for them as a group, especially as they're going through difficult times? What's the one thing that they have to keep in mind? They have, all have the same mind in humility. Looking to others as if they're valuable and they're important, right? First comes love, then comes humility. And who does Paul offer us an example of what this humility looks like? Well, let's just read it. Verse 5, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as who? Christ Jesus. I mean, catch this. Remember, back in verse 2, as they're facing difficult times, they need to come together as a group and be like-minded, right? Set their minds on the same thing. And that same thing was what? Humility. <laughs> and now Paul is saying that they also need to have the same mind as who? There's a who in the story. Who's that? Jesus, right? They have to have their minds focused on the same thing that Jesus is focused on. And what does Jesus focus on? Verse 5, in your relationship with one another, have the same mindset of Jesus Christ, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, selfish ambition. <laughs> Rather, he made himself nothing, literally emptied himself, by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled Himself. There's the word, right? Bible becoming obedient to death, even death 
on a cross. Jesus' example that we see here in the gospel story is that he's humbly set aside his own power, his own pride, selfish ambition, and he focuses instead on the needs of others, right? Treating them as if they're valuable, treating them as if they're important. Humility. And when we do that, we glorify God. It's not vain conceit. This is actually giving glory to the right person, right? God. This is, this is truly giving God the glory that he deserves. Right? It's what this passage is leading to. And how do we do this? To do this, we've got to be able to put ourselves in the shoes of someone else, right? Think about it. What does Jesus do? Jesus <laughs> took on the very nature of a servant. He came to serve. He came in human likeness. He humbled himself. He made our needs more important than his own, right? Even to the point of death on a cross. Now, that's some humility. Now, does, does his, his humility mean that he's not important? Think about this. That because Jesus is humble, does that mean he's not important? I think our world really messes this, this thought up, <laughs> Putting the needs of others over yourself is not saying that you are not worth anything. You see that? that? That's just simply not true. At least not in Christ. Valuing another human being as an amazing creation of God does not minimize us. It actually raises us all up, right? We're all creations of God. We're all something very important, right? All of us trying to serve each other, having the same mindset as one another, being humble. I mean, what an amazing and hopeful image of humanity, isn't it? Don't we need more of this in our world? Lifting each other up, serving each other, being humble, we have to put aside our self-focused ambitions that could come at the cost of another person. We have to humbly recognize that the world, our faith, our marriages, our relationships, they just don't revolve around our own happiness. That's not what it's about. We are not better or more important than anyone else, especially our spouse or a friend, right? But this means that we got to pay attention. <laughs> We've got to not minimize their feelings, their experiences, <laughs> their ideas. Their needs are as important as our needs, right? And who's the premier example of this again? Jesus. Scholar Robert Leintart. Leitner, sorry, I misspoke his name. He says, Christ did not hesitate to set aside his self-willed use of deity when he became a man. As God, he had all the rights of deity as being God. And yet during his incarnate state, 
he surrendered his right to manifest himself visibly as the God of all splendor and glory. He emptied himself. From the Greek word canoe, points to the divesting of his self-interest, but not of his deity. <laughs> Do you see that? It didn't make Jesus any less in order to be a servant, to be humble, right? He was still God. Choosing to live humbly towards another does not negate your self-worth, right? Does not negate your unique personhood. You do not have to become less of a person to live humbly with your spouse. <laughs> the goal is actually to help one another grow and become all that God wants us to be. Now, does this mean that we never get into disagreements? <laughs> Someone's been there before. Someone very wise. There will be many times when we have differing opinions. Right? In fact, there'll be many times when we just flat out fail each other, right? Yet humility recognizes that, that no one's perfect. And we all need the grace of God. Praise the Lord. Right? We can offer grace. We all need it. Let's not resort to these heavy-handed <laughs> decision-making moments where we become bitter with one another, where we resent each other and blame each other. The hope is really much more than that for us in Christ. Taking the time to have good communication. <laughs> not convenient, never convenient. Not always fun, always challenging, but still worth the effort. Why? Because you're worth the effort. <laughs> We're all worth the effort. And let's remember that our striving for unity is not the same as striving for uniformity, Right? Even in marriage, when commonalities and shared interests, they become great connecting points, we're still not the same person. You have different strengths. You have different abilities. You have different thoughts. You have different ideas. And, and you know what? They all can benefit each other. Work to have the same mindset of Christ. Work to serve one another in humility. Work to value each other. And what you bring to the relationship. That makes sense? I mean, even within our disagreements, if they ever do occur, right? The hope is really for both parties to still have a singular purpose. What is that? To glorify God individually, but also through our relationship, right? And in your marriage. I mean, what does it look like going back to sports here, <laughs> to continue to play on the same team even though you were completely off on that last play, right? So we messed up the last play. What do, what do we do? We, we're still on the same team. Let's just do the next play a little better, right? Let's offer some grace. Let's offer some humility. <laughs> we're not God's gift to relationship, Right? Come into the relationship humbly. And amazingly, as we grow in the Lord, we actually grow better in our relationships with people, don't we? And I, worth, I think it's worth saying <laughs> that not everyone will get married, that marriage is not a guarantee, that marriage is not a reward for good behavior, right? It's a gift of grace, not always a fun gift of grace. 
And we should recognize it as that, right? We too need to be humble at this great privilege that God gets, allows us to serve him in whatever capacity that is, right? And we should not go into those, those relationships wanting to lord it over them or instead be kneeling at the feet of Jesus as we interact with each other humbly, right? Soberly. <laughs> My last quote, Andrew Murray, a South African pastor during the 1800s wrote, the only humility that is really ours is not that which we try to show before God in prayer, but that which we carry with us and carry out in our ordinary conduct. The insignificance of daily life are the importances and tests of eternity because they prove what really is the spirit that possesses us. It's in our most unguarded moments that we really show and see what we are. To know the humble man, you, to know how the humble man behaves, you must follow him in the common courses of daily life. What's Murray saying? Being humble before God is one thing. How you live your ordinary life, however, <laughs> how you treat others in those mundane moments truly shows whether you have caught the humility that God desires from your life. How do we live with one another? In other words, if someone watched your life, how you treated other people, how you treated your spouse, would they consider you humble? Maybe, <laughs> maybe a harder question would be, would they consider you a follower of the one who humbled himself to the point of death? Right? First comes love, then comes humility. What's God been talking to you about this morning? You know, sometimes I think recognizing the voice of God is a difficult task, but a lot of times it's that voice speaking to us that we really don't appreciate. <laughs> But we know he's right, right? We know he's right. Would we be willing to humble ourselves before God this morning and ask for his help? Choose his ways. And we know, <laughs> dealing with God, that this is not a moment of decision, right? It's not a, here, God, you can have this. I'm all done, <laughs> certainly is a walk with the Lord that will shape our lives forever as we walk with the Lord. That might require an apology to someone. Might require a commitment to do better by the grace of the Lord, right? Choosing to choose God's way and a daily walk with him, allowing him to change our hearts. You trust him? Christian relationships, Christian marriage. Two people unified in a single pursuit. Not a pursuit of perfection, a pursuit to love God and one another well. First comes love, then comes humility. Pray with me.
Lord God, we are so thankful <laughs> that you are a good God, that you love so deeply, that your son <laughs> was willing to do so much for us, even die for us. We just, it's not even fathomable. Your love is so, so great. Lord God, we as humans, we confess that we have a difficult time with relationships sometimes. We sometimes want our way. We sometimes think that our ways are best. That we have the edge of the market and wisdom and good thoughts. And sometimes we go about convincing each other in really bad ways. Lord God, would you just help us? Help us to be your people. Help us to catch the love that you have for us. Help us to offer that same love to others. Lord, we can't do that in our own strength. We need your help. We need you working in our hearts and our minds. Would you help us to humble ourselves before you? Humble ourselves before one another so that we might actually value each other, see each other as important as creations of you. Would you help us, Lord, to serve others the way you desire us to serve? We trust you, Lord. We believe your ways are right and true. We want your ways in our lives, Lord. Would you help us day by day to walk with you? And Lord God, we'll give you all the praise. You deserve it. You are worthy. We give you praise this morning. And all the people said, Amen. Would you stand with me this morning as we close our service? Our benediction passage is from Matthew chapter 11, where Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. See it? And you will find rest for your souls. That's a pretty good reward, isn't it? For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. People of God, we are so blessed, aren't we? Let us seek one mind together, but also let's seek one mind with Christ this morning, to love each other deeply, to live in humility, serving one another as Christ served us. Let's love as he loved us, by God's grace. May God work in your hearts as you trust in him. You are sent.